Awesome. Genesis 37. If you're familiar with the story of Genesis, uh, we're kind of entering the last section of the whole book. I don't know when we started. When did we start? A long time ago. Who said 10 years ago? Has it felt like 10 years? Hopefully it has not felt like 10 years. Hopefully it's only felt like a few minutes. Uh, but uh, we have been in Genesis a while, and it is kind of the last section. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the central character of the story does shift uh, from Jacob to Joseph. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting thing. Moses gives more time to Joseph than, the other than any other character in the Old Testament. Right? So that, that idea, simply on face value, is interesting. But then if you look at the wider scope of the Bible, Joseph doesn't get a whole lot of shout-outs. So it's kind of an interesting thing that, that, we, that we encounter here. Uh, characters like Abraham are mentioned far more frequently. Even Jacob, uh, Israel, mentioned way more frequently. But Joseph actually gets a vast majority uh, of the ink in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's no surprising, uh, really, when you get into the story, because the story is inspired. Right? Even when we first started Genesis, uh, Jack grabbed me very early on. I think we were in chapter 1 or 2, and he called dibs on the Joseph story. Uh, now, he didn't specify which part of the Joseph story, but Jack knew the story of Joseph, and he knew the inspiration that's there, and he said, man, I want to preach that part of the text. And, you know, maybe we'll let him, maybe we won't, we'll see. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, but, but you know, for, for a variety of reasons, obviously, you know, even, even Hollywood figures it out, and Broadway, as, as, as the story has, you know, really you know, spread far and wide, uh, but you think about why. Why? You know, I mean, a lot of stories in the Bible resonate with us, but for some reason, the story of Joseph really resonates with people. You know, and maybe it's because uh, of the, the marrying together of the reality of life having many challenges and suffering and, and adversity, coupled together with the, the idea of, man, God is sovereign. He has providence. He, he knows the beginning and the end. His plan won't, will not and cannot be thwarted. And there's great comfort in that. Maybe, maybe it's that. Uh, you know, but I think there's maybe even a deeper reason. You know, Joseph, of all the characters in the Old Testament, uh, maybe only David beats him out, but, but Joseph is one of the clearest messianic figures. Kind of the pre-pictures we get of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. Right? And there's lots of, you know, and over the coming weeks, as we do 37 all the way to the end of Genesis, you know, you'll see many, many parallels. But I think there's an interesting thing, because when any story taps into the story arc of the ultimate story, the story of Jesus. It's a funny thing to see mankind gravitate towards. We're like bugs to light, right? When you, when you, when you take a, a hero that overcomes adversity and a great sacrifice of self saves others, we're drawn to it. We're drawn to it. And I think a lot of times we don't even really know why we're drawn to it. But anything that kind of has an echo of the story of the gospel, we do, we do feel drawn to it. And Joseph has a lot of echoes, right? Joseph, Joseph, just like Jesus, was the beloved son of the father, was rejected by his own people, and specifically by his brothers. Both Joseph and Jesus left exalted stat status to become slaves. After which, they were wrongfully accused and delivered over to death. Both of them broke out of those, those you know, prisons or death uh, and became a source of salvation for many, many others. 
You know, even those major details draw great parallels, but even a lot of the details draw great parallels, right? They're both stripped of their clothing, bound. They're both condemned with two other criminals, one that ends up dead and one that ends up alive. Again, very, very interesting, right? So, we'll, we'll, you know, in the coming weeks as we go through Joseph uh, and, and, and his storyline, we'll see many, many more parallels. But as, as we do so, we'll also see Jesus. Which is really what the whole Old Testament is about anyways. So hopefully we see him with great clarity and are drawn to him as we should be. Amen? So if you got your Bibles, crack it open here. Let's read chapter 37 in its entirety. Uh, and then we'll draw out some points on it. So it starts there, verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father, father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing your flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, the man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. 
So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. What, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to the father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Great intro here to Joseph and great snapshot of family life in the Old Testament. We'll have a prayer and then we'll look at some points from it. Now, Father, you know, we do thank you for Jesus or for Joseph and, you know, ultimately for Jesus and how he does reflect that, God. And uh, we pray, God, we pray that as we, as we look at Joseph, uh, you know, over the coming weeks uh, or months and, and as we consider, you know, your, your sovereignty, how you have a plan and you will fulfill it and, and nothing can hinder that, God. We pray that that, you know, elevated, rightful viewpoint of you, God, can produce in us the humility we desperately need. Father, we know that doesn't come naturally to us, God. That we so often can allow pride to, to run amok in our hearts, God. But we pray you help us, God. Help us to learn from your word and from the stories that it contains so that we can walk in a way that pleases you and glorifies you. Be with us now as we look at this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look, it's a phenomenal story. And you've heard the story before, and maybe, maybe you're a little bit like me, and, and you read the story, uh, and you maybe come to the text, or hear the text, with some assumptions. Right? Or maybe we jump to some conclusions pretty quickly about our young man Joseph here. He's 17. He's got a sweet outfit, he's favored by the father, and he has some pretty outrageous dreams that he freely shares, you know? And so it's very easy for us to look at him and think, man, that's pretty proud, man. Pretty arrogant. Seems a bit full of himself. You know, I know I many times have read this text and thought that, especially when you see verse 2, right? That, that the, one of the first things we're introduced to about Joseph is him being a snitch. And we all know what happens to snitches? They get stitches. And so maybe he deserves to get what's coming for him. Right? And maybe you thought that. Maybe, you, you know, maybe you're like me. Or maybe you just think, gosh, he's got a problem with gossip and slander. Why is he going to talk about his brothers that way? But there are some problems if that's our viewpoint that we need to face. First off is there's a lot of ink devoted to Joseph. As I pointed out early, but he is almost never shown, really, to have any sin. And that doesn't mean that Joseph is sinless, because we know everyone sins, everyone falls short. But, but the, the, the scriptures are pretty clear, here's an upstanding guy. And now you contrast with the other characters in our text. Right, if you were with us, you know, I don't know how many weeks ago, three, three weeks ago, when Cameron did the lovely chapter 34. Where Joseph's brothers, you know, get up to a bit bunch of no good, really. 
That, that's who we're contrasted with here. You know, we've got to be careful that we're not following their example. Because Joseph's brothers, you know, are displayed having a lot of evil deeds, as I said in 34. Even in chapter 35, which we looked at last week, Reuben, who in this text is actually pretty positive, seems to be level-headed, you know, for the mob, uh, you know, and, and tries to rescue Joseph. But in 35, we see Reuben trying to usurp his father's authority by sleeping with his concubine. Not a positive thing. Right? Get a negative thing. Right? And so we need to be careful that we don't jump on Joseph too quickly. That we don't call him proud and young and arrogant. Because we need to pause when we begin to think those things. Because the reality is, when we think those things, who are we actually imitating in this text? The brothers. And no one reads 37 and walks away thinking, man, I just want to be like Judah. If I could just wake up tomorrow and imitate uh, Joseph's brothers, man, that'd be a great week. No one thinks that. But a lot of times we do look at Joseph and our thoughts are just like Joseph's brother's thoughts. And again, that should make us pause. It should make us stop. Because we need to consider some of the evidence. Joseph's dreams are outrageous, but yet who is the source of those dreams? It's God. Even what happens to those dreams is God brings them about and fulfills them over the course of time. Alright? Now jo Jacob, Israel, Joseph's father, he knew that God had at that time and that place uh, often revealed his will through dreams. And even, even Judah, as he, or even Jacob, as he hears about Joseph's dreams, it says there that he thinks about it. So at first he rebukes him, but then it says he thinks about it. And I think probably there's some wisdom in what you know, Israel is doing there and pausing a bit and thinking, hold on. God's revealed some things to me over time in dreams. And so he steps back from that precipice of assuming there's arrogance. Right? And in, in, in this story, there's an irony in that we often read it, like I said, and we immediately point out the pride of Joseph that we think. Like I said, when we do that, we are imitating his brothers, who are the villains in the story. But we're also, in many ways, confirming pride in our own heart by doing that very exercise. Because we often point out or, you know, perceive something that, is, that we think is in someone else, when in reality it's in our own hearts. We tend to project our own issues a lot of times onto one another. And the challenge today is to step back a bit and look at pride. And see it with clarity. And see it clearly in the story so that we can see it clearly in our lives. Amen? Now, I think for us as Australians, that can be a little bit challenging. You guys ever heard of this? The tall poppy syndrome. Right? Everyone know the origins of it? Ancient Corinth. Right? A wicked king, you know, sent his son out to kind of stir up trouble in one of the neighboring cities. Uh, his son goes there, uh, is making some headway, overthrowing that city. Asks, you know, sends his messenger back to old daddy. Uh, daddy takes the messenger outside and, and takes, you know, this picture. It's a little bit dark, but the, you know, basically the picture is of him, you know, taking a stick and running across the puppies. Right? Doesn't say a word. The messenger goes back to the son who's in a different city, uh, and the son interprets it of, hey, what do I need to do? I need to find all the leaders in the city and I need to take them out. And then overthrow the city. And that's the very thing that the son does. And so that's one of the origins of that, that phrase. Uh, and it's not just Australia that struggles with it, right? Australia does have it, right? Cutting down the tall poppy. 
Uh, this idea of someone that rises above the egalitarian uh, social fabric needs to be put in their place. Australia's done you know, lots of examples of that over time, but like I said, it's not just an Australian problem. Right? Japan has the same saying, the similar saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Right? The nail that sticks up, that gets hammered down. Uh, the Dutch join in as well. Don't put your head above ground level. I put about level. I even tried to fix that. Right? Don't put your head above ground level. Right? Um, even Chile. Pull the jacket. Who's ever heard that? I've never heard that one either. But, you know, someone said there's a common saying that they use there. Uh, obviously, it'd be in Spanish. So maybe it sounds better in Spanish. Right? The other one that's you know, not attributed to any country in particular is that of crabs in a bucket. Right? You ever catch a bunch of crabs and put them in a the bucket? If one starts to make headway to get out of the bucket, what do the other ones do? Latch on and pull them back down. We're all getting boiled together, boys. No one escapes. Right? And sometimes we can function that way in our communities. Right? And, and, and it's an interesting thing uh, because that's kind of what's happening here in Jacob's, in, in Jacob's family. The brothers are, 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 you know, we've already seen hints of it in the previous chapter with Reuben's antics. But there is this jostling for position. Right? And, and, and Joseph, for a variety of reasons, you know, the, the favoritism that's shown to him by his father, uh, or, or, you know, even, you know, the favor that God is showing to him, you know, puts him in a position over and above the brothers. And, and, and it destroys the relationships and how they respond to that scenario. Right? Like I said earlier, we've got to be careful of the pride that's there. Because often tall poppy syndrome functions in the sense of, I don't have pride, but this person who is rising above, they have pride, and so they need to be cut down. But the reality is, the pride, yes, it may be in that person, but we've got to be careful it's also not in us. Right? Got to be careful that it's not also in us. And so today we're going to focus on poppy pride. Right? Poppy pride, the pride that tends to cut other people down, especially a character like Joseph. Having some technical difficulties. Is that one flashing? Comes on and off. Comes on and off. We'll see. Chris to the rescue. As he does, alright? So let, let's talk about poppy pride. Let's look at some of the examples of that. Right, right here in the beginning of our text in the story, we see that there's a fair bit of envy and jealousy coming out from the brothers. You know, there in chapter 37, verse 4. It says there that when, when his brother Saul that their father loved him more than any of them. They hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. Now, there's a lot of sad aspects in that verse, right? I mean, you do think, how has Israel not learned the danger of favoritism yet? You think, you think that would have resonated, but then you also think, there's a lot of lessons we hear in our lives over and over and over that don't seem to resonate, right? So let's have a little bit of compassion for Jacob, you know? But, but nonetheless, there's a sense of, hey, he's shown favoritism. And what does that do? to the relationship between the brothers, is it stirs up that envy. It stirs up that jealousy. You know, and later on when he has the second dream and he reports it to, to his father as well as his brothers, the text just plainly says it. Right? His brothers there in verse 11 were jealous of him. Now, envy and jealousy are funny things. They're things that come deep out of our heart. And according to psychiatrist Neil Burton, he says envy is not simply the desire for something another person has like a skill, a possession, or accomplishment. 
It is tied to the painful awareness that you yourself do not have what they have. And so in many ways, when that emotion begins to well in our heart or when it begins to, to, to skew how we see somebody, it's actually pointing to an unmet need in our own heart. We have a choice at that moment. Right? If we harbor it in terms of the negative and project it out on that person, it grows and it becomes envy and jealousy. Right? And it begins to destroy a relationship. You know, you know, we saw this when we went through 1 Samuel and looked at you know, Saul and his interactions with David and how he got that singular eye, that evil eye, that envious eye on David. And we see the same thing here. And the reality is, yes, there's probably some, you know, not probably, there is some mess within this family that needs to be dealt with in terms of the favoritism. But the brothers have this unmet need. They have daddy issues. And, and yet, instead of dealing with them, they begin to fixate on Joseph. They long for the love that he has shown, but their solution is to attack Joseph. The solution is to turn on him and to look at him with that evil intent, rather than stepping back and thinking about what's really going on inside. What's really going on in my heart? You know, if you ever find, if you ever find yourself having a difficult time when other people succeed or other people are victorious in an area you want to have progress or you want to have victory or you want to have success, and if you have a hard time rejoicing with them, that's usually a good indicator that, hey, there's, there's some pride there. I mean, you think, how would this story be different if the brothers see the love that's being showered on Joseph by their father and instead of turning on Joseph, they go to the father. And they said, Dad, let's work out our issues. Why don't you love me like you love Joseph? You know, again, I don't know if Israel would have responded to that. We're way down the road of conjecture here at this point. But you know what I mean? They have a choice. There's an unmet need, and they choose to deal with it in the wrong way. And that pride in their heart becomes fertile ground for envy and jealousy to begin to grow. And envy and jealousy that's left unattended ends with you being resentful. This is their brother they're talking about. And the text said that they could not find a kind word to say to him. They couldn't. They couldn't muster it up. As they searched their heart, as they interact with him, no good could come, no kindness could come out. That's a, that's a very good indicator of pride. Our words are funny things. We talk a lot. We say a lot. But we often don't think about what our words are saying. And we often don't think enough about what our words are actually revealing about what's going on in our own heart. I mean, Jesus is very clear about this. Matthew 12, verse 34, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. But oftentimes we don't know what's going on in our heart. We don't know what's going on, what we're feeling. We're out of touch with it. And we just kind of live reactionary. But man, Jesus says, hey, you want to know what's going on inside? Look into, you know, listen to your words. That'll tell you a great deal about what's in your heart. You know, James makes a, makes a similar appeal. James chapter 3, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but he poses the question, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Hey, what's coming out? And our reactions and what we say, well, hey, that tells us. That tells us something about the condition of all. And that again, that's an opportunity. It's not... 
It's not like, hey, let me look at it to, to be condemned. It's, hey, let me, let, me, let me think about what those words mean because that tells me something about myself and that is a valuable nugget. And a lot of times we can shy away from self-examination or you know, any, any, any sense of trying to understand ourselves because we don't want to see. But that's folly. Right? That's folly. We need to look at that process as one that brings about healing. I mean, think about that. Think about the next time you're in conversation with someone and you're probably talking about somebody else and that temptation arises where you can say something negative about another person. And think about just in that, that moment, uh, you know, this is a phrase Michelle and I would use a lot, Dan the thought goalie. I would imagine if Dan the thought goalie in that moment can just step up and present, prevent those thoughts from being translated into words and coming out of your mouth. And then instead of saying it, you stop and think, hey, what, why do I want to say that? Yeah. Why, why, why am I saying that? What is my intent in saying that? What does that actually say about me? What does that actually reveal about my heart? What if we pause and think about those words and about what they're revealing about our hearts? Third, when we think about poppy pride, the obvious one is that of arrogance. You know, the reality is they hated Joseph before he ever had that dream. Before he ever had his dreams and shared those dreams with them, they already were hated because of that envy and that jealousy and the bitterness or resentfulness that was growing uh, as a byproduct. But when he has the dreams, and he shares those dreams with them, something sparks in them. And it's pretty clear what sparks in them, because they say back to him there in verse 8 and again in verse 10, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And then later on when their father hears it, well, will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Authority issues. Arrogance issues. There's esteem issues. There's a lot happening here. Right? And I think arrogance comes out in a variety of ways, like I just said. Right? It can come out in authority issues, or it can come out in self-esteem issues. Right? Joseph's brothers could not wrap their mind around this idea that their younger brother, who they hated, could possibly be in control of their lives. Could possibly have authority in their lives. They believed themselves to be in control. They believed themselves to be masters of their own destiny. They felt like they were sovereign. Now, as we're going to talk about here in a minute, when they encountered Joseph, and really the hero that's behind Joseph, which is God... All those thoughts that often play on us when we have authority issues ultimately find conflict between us and God. And a lot of times we can blur that. We can think, well, I just have issues with human authority. Well, well, well maybe, or, or maybe you have issues with all of them. And maybe it's just coming out here now with the person that's in authority over you at the moment. But maybe there's something deeper to explore. Because maybe even how you interact with God and relate to God is exposed in a small manner in how you interact with people. Because having authority issues, that does seem to spark it in you. It does seem to gather a huge reaction. And then what goes right alongside authority issues when we think about pride is that of self-esteem issues. 
And our world has done us no good in this regard. Because our world a lot of times tells us that our problem is that we have too low of a self-esteem. You know, and if you've never read Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, I plead with you go out and buy it. Uh, if someone has given that book to you, you've got to really stop and think about why they've given that book to you and read it. And maybe read it two or three times. Uh, and if no one's given it to you, come see me and I'll give it to you, right? <laughs> That'll just cover all the bases there. Right? But in that book, he does a great job exploring this concept. And one of the quotes from it today, he says, Our belief today, and it's deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem. Because they have too low of a view of themselves. He says, you see, the thing about low self-esteem theory of misbehavior is that it's very attractive. You do not have to make any moral judgments in order to deal with society's problems. All you have to do is support people and build them up. And he says that's why it's appealing, right? Because we don't have to confront what's really going on in our lives. We don't have to face the realities that are within us. We just think, oh, this guy... Focus on the good things we do. But self, you know, esteem is a funny thing. Self-esteem is a funny thing. If we're having authority issues, if we're having issues of, of when we feel disrespected, we've got to step back and think, who gets disrespected in the Bible? I mean, who's the number one characters of the New Testament that are almost constantly being disrespected? I'll give you a hint. It's not Jesus. Though he has all authority. Which is a very interesting thing, right? I mean, if it really, if that's the core problem, then wouldn't the one at the very top constantly be feeling disrespected because no one's respecting him how he should be respected? But it's not him that's constantly disrespected. It's the religious people around him. Why? Because they think very highly of themselves. And when Jesus comes, the ultimate authority, they've got issues left, right, and center. They're constantly feeling slighted. They're upset that he tells, them a par tells a parable to the crowd that clearly condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They feel disrespected. Why? Not because their self-esteem is too low, but because their self-esteem is too high. <coughs> and that's exactly what's happening in this story with Joseph's brothers. They think very highly of themselves. In the next chapter, we'll see very clearly just how much they only really think about themselves. And so as they come in conflict with Joseph, man, it's difficult. It's ego wounds all over the place. The last symptom, if you will, of poppy pride is disproportionate reaction. I mean, yes, Joseph's 17. Yes, the father shows him favoritism and he wears a special robe everywhere he goes. Yes, that would be difficult to stomach and face. Yes, he has dreams that, you know, he shares very freely. But in reaction to those dreams, to think the next course of action is murder, is a disproportionate reaction to the scenario. It's an overreaction. It's not warranted based on the facts of the story. But how often in your life do you have disproportionate reactions? Or maybe somebody shares something with you and the reaction is way over the top. Way too strong. That's a good indicator that there's pride there. Pride that needs to be faced and pride that needs to be dealt with. Now we won't end there because that would be kind of discouraging. 
But you think about the story, and you think about the poppy pride, and you think about what these 11 brothers all together, though Reuben's trying to hold out, you know, what they come up with here. They reach boiling point with their brother. They see him coming in the distance. And their response there, verse 20, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. There's such tasty irony there. They, in their pride, wanting to prevent the fulfillment of the dreams, turn around and accomplish God's plan for the fulfillment of those dreams. That's tasty. And Joseph's life is full of irony. And the reason it's full of irony, just like the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, is full of irony, is because you are faced, we are faced with crystal clear the sovereignty of God. Amen. They think they're in control. In their pride, they think, let's deal with them, let's kill them, no more dreams. Just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought with Jesus. They thought, let's kill him. Let's strike the shepherd. The sheep will be gone. Problem dealt with. The very thing that prideful minds conceive as a solution to the problem is what God uses to accomplish the plan. It's humbling. It's humbling. All of our poppy pride problems have their roots in control. And our fault since... Of, of having control. But what we're going to be hammered with over the coming months as we look at Joseph is we are not in control. Yep. You can do everything right like Joseph and end up in jail wrongly accused. God is in control. Amen. Not us. Not Joseph's brothers. Not Potiphar's wife. Not the other guys in jail. Not even Pharaoh. And of course, the great thing, even as we think about what's going to unfold here with Joseph, is that God had already told Abraham all this is going to happen. Would you think, man, if they listened more to God, maybe they wouldn't have been so surprised about Joseph. But we're confronted with this reality of the sovereign God, who is in control of all things. And when we encounter God, we have something to do with our pride. Jesus puts it this way, as he talks about himself being the stone. Matthew 21, verse 44. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. This is the origin of the easy way or the hard way. Either way, we will all come in contact with the stone. The stone is inevitable. God, His sovereign plan, His word, it, it is reality. It is, it is more temporary and, and permanent than everything we see in this world. Heaven and earth are going to be gone. His word will remain. Jesus here says about himself that everyone is going to come in contact with him. Everyone. The choice is how you will come in contact with him. The choice is how you will interact with him. One enables you to have life. Falling on Him and being broken, that, that enables you to rise and, and to live for Him. That enables your pride to be broken down, the control in your life to be surrendered like we sing about in one of the songs earlier today. 
that enables that part to happen if we allow humility to come into our hearts. If we don't, in the end, just like Joseph's dreams, every knee will bow before Jesus. Whether you believed in him or not, that doesn't matter. It's the nature of truth. It is reality. Whether you accept it, it's irrelevant. It is. Your acceptance, your rejection, that's on you. That doesn't change the nature of truth. That doesn't change the nature of Jesus. And Jesus' appeal here, and I think the appeal that we even get from the Joseph story, is that don't choose the path of being crushed. <coughs> Joseph's brothers are going to learn that, hey, you know what? They're not in control. God is. They're not sovereign. God is. And when we begin to accept that reality, humility grows in our hearts. Humility begins to take root. Change becomes a possibility. A different path can then be charted. We can learn. We can grow. We can be changed as people because we begin to open up to other ideas, other perspectives, specifically God's. And my appeal to us today is to not walk out of here thinking, as we often do, man, Joseph's proud. But instead think, man, maybe, maybe I've got pride. Maybe I've got some arrogance. Maybe I need to step back and look at the, 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 the story arc of Joseph's life and realize, you know what, I'm not in control of God's in you know what? If he wants to take my life, leave me for dead, sell me to slavery, throw me in jail, only to bring me out decades later, that's his choice. I need to trust in him that he's in control. And that he is sovereign. And his divine plan will be accomplished. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand together and sing one final song. You know, Father, we, we thank you for Joseph's brothers. And God, we know that, that we relate to them way more than we want to admit. But God, we pray you help us to, to see the, the pride of poppies in our heart, God. We've allowed envy or jealousy, God, to, to, to cloud our vision of our own needs. God, help us to pause and to think about it. If we've left wounds undealt with God and allowed resentment and bitterness to, to grow, God, help us to pause and to think about it. God, if we've allowed the, the, the arrogance, the, the authority issues, the self-esteem issues, God, to, to run rampant, God, give us the courage to pause and to think and to consider, God. The next time, God, we want to react or overreact, God, Help us, God. By your spirit, God, give us a sliver of self-control to stop and to consider, God, what's actually going on in our hearts. God, we, we see the story of Joseph and we see your great sovereignty. We see that, that no matter what we come up with, God, we cannot thwart you. We cannot stop you. We cannot hinder. We cannot prevent your plan. God, we pray that, that that knowledge of you and an elevated view of you and an exalted view of you, God, can produce in us so much more humility, God. We are not God. You are. We are not worthy, but you are, God. And Father, we know that, that, that to live life in a way that, that brings you glory and honor, we have to be a humble people. 
We pray, God, that you help us, God. Help us to help one another, God. To have the humility that is so desperately needed in order to glorify you. Again, we thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to give us the way to, to have forgiveness, to have grace, and to have mercy so that we can be changed by you, God. Help us to be soft and moldable clay in your hands rather than stubborn and hard. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Also, let's stand together and sing.